G'day and welcome to Stick Together, Australia's only national radio program dedicated to union news, workers' stories and discussion on social justice issues. Stick Together is produced in the Melbourne studios of 3CR and broadcast right around the country thanks to the Community Radio Network. My name's Matt Kunkel. This week on the show, we bring you an update about the case of Bahrain-born footballer Hakim Al-Arabi, who has now spent more than 70 days in a Thai prison and facing deportation back to danger in Bahrain. Rallies were staged in Sydney and Melbourne last Friday calling for his release, and we'll bring you sounds from the Melbourne rally. Then, later in the show, we'll speak with Paul Healy from the Health and Community Services Union about the Royal Commission into Mental Health Services in Victoria. More on that to come, but first, some union news. Workers at the Port Kembla Coal Terminal have again been locked out by their employer following another round of worker-led strikes in support of improved job security. The CFMMEU report that the sticking point in enterprise agreement negotiations remains the company's refusal to retain a clause that prevents unregulated casualisation of the workplace. Negotiations for the replacement agreement have now dragged into their fourth year. While the company has repeatedly insisted that it has no plans to casualise the plant and introduce labour hire workers, the union remains understandably sceptical. Why would the company persist in efforts to remove the clause and suffer what is now weeks of rolling industrial strife if indeed there are no plans to undercut job security? There have now been more than 30 different stop work actions at the terminal since last December. Last week, unionists at the local steel mills, docks and coal fields all pledged to support the striking workers. With each group of workers under sustained pressure and attack from their bosses, the Illawarra region is yet again a hotspot for industrial activity. Seafarers there are fighting against job cuts by BHP, and coal miners are seeking to solidify their win after recent strike action won concessions around the use of labour hire workers on the fields. Workers from Bluescope Steel in the same area are also taking strike action, in this case for improved wages and conditions. The workers there are enraged at the company's failure to offer decent pay after they agreed to savage pay cuts to keep the plant open during the global financial crisis. The commitment from members of the CFMEU, MUA and AWU now sees terminal workers joined around the clock on pickets by members of these other unions. There have been international calls for the release of key leaders of the Zimbabwean Congress of Trade Unions after their arrest late January this year. The nation has been gripped by violence following wild protests where 12 people were killed and more than 600 people, including key opposition figures, have now been detained. Pro-government and pro-opposition forces clashed as the nation's fuel crisis and hyperinflation issues reached critical points. ZCTU's General Secretary Jafet Moyo and President Peter Matassa have been detained following the ZCTU's call for a three-day stay-away strike, called in part because many workers now lack the ability to fuel their vehicles and make it to work. The stay-away tactic was employed to ensure union members were not caught up in the violence that has plagued the nation, but this has not stopped the government from arresting them for subversion. Protests calling for their release have spread to other African nations, including Nigeria, but the industrial tension in Zimbabwe remains high. The Apex Council, which represents 17 of Zimbabwe's public sector unions, called off strikes scheduled for this week, raising concerns that the strikes would be hijacked for the purposes unrelated to their pay demands. The teachers' union, however, has decided that they will continue with the planned strikes and mobilise their members this week. Matassa and Moyo remain in jail despite being granted bail, and you can find out more by searching for ZCTU on Facebook. 
More than 4,000 delivery drivers at 220 Pizza Hut outlets around the country will receive penalty rates for the first time in almost 30 years, after two dozen old agreements were terminated by the Fair Work Commission. The move has been a long time coming, and it was all the way back in 2016 when the SDA first applied for the termination of these agreements. They were terminated in 2017, but in a spectacular decision, these terminations were then overturned by the same commission based on what it described as an administrative error. The terminations come after protracted EBA negotiations between Pizza Hut and the SDA broke down in 2018. Ultimately, Pizza Hut consented to the termination of these agreements, as it said that negotiations for a new enterprise agreement were not likely to settle anytime soon. The SDA reports that there will be some increases to pay rates when compared to the old agreements, but a spokesperson from Pizza Hut said that, Our franchisee partners are looking to mitigate the increase in labour costs through benefits unlocked under the award and a savvy use of their existing labour force. Work that one out if you can. Former judge Kenneth Hayne has released the final report of the Banking Royal Commission to Federal Treasurer Josh Frydenberg in what was a very icy meeting this week. In a media set piece, Hayne refused to shake Mr Frydenberg's hand, even declining to be videoed pushing the report across the table, in what must be the most open indication of just how difficult the federal government has made this process from the very start. Shocking revelations of greed and misconduct by banks have been uncovered during the commission, which has included 10,000 submissions from the public and almost 10 weeks of public hearings. The Finance Sector Union is engaged with the Commission, calling for widespread changes to the way that banks operate, including practices they say ethically compromise staff by linking pay and commissions to aggressive selling practices and pushing products of marginal or no value to customers. Since the report's release, the FSU has come out to criticise the Commission for not going far enough, including criticisms that it does not end the self-regulation by banks. The government, however, will now be forced to respond to all the recommendations of the Royal Commission less than four months out from a federal election. Ironically, the timing is one of their own making, having voted against setting up the Commission on no less than 26 times, delaying its start by more than 12 months. You're listening to Stick Together, workers' stories and union news. broadcast around the country every week on the Community Radio Network. Three weeks ago, we brought you the story of Bahrain-born footballer Hakim Al-Arabi, who has now been detained in a Thai prison for more than 70 days. Despite being granted refugee status in Australia, he is now facing a return to danger in Bahrain. Rallies were held in Sydney and Melbourne last week calling for his immediate release, and Stick Together's Annie McLaughlin was at the Melbourne rally. Our report starts with John Didalika from Hakim's Union, Professional Footballers Australia. Uh, Hakim Al-Arabi is many things. Son, husband, young man, refugee, freedom fighter, human rights champion, soon-to-be Australian, prisoner, footballer. Hakim is a refugee from Bahrain who plays football for the Pasco Vale Football Club. He is a former member of the Bahraini national team. In 2012, Hakim was detained and tortured for his role in peaceful pro-democracy protests. In 2014, Hakim fled to Australia where he was accepted as a refugee. After fleeing, he was convicted in absentia for vandalising a police station and given a 10-year prison sentence. Despite an alibi of having playing football in a televised football match at the same time. In 2016, Hakim criticised FIFA presidential candidate Sheikh Salman for his role in a crackdown against athletes who participated in the Arab Spring protests. Salman is a member of Bahrain's royal family and ruling family 
and is a senior vice president of FIFA and president of the Asian Football Confederation. In November 2018, Hakim travelled with his wife to Thailand for their honeymoon, like many thousands of Australians have. He was detained in Bangkok under a wrongly issued Interpol red notice. His detention in Thailand is now over 60 days. It is unlawful and it is a breach of his international law. He faces extradition to Bahrain, where he is likely to serve a 10-year prison sentence and likely to once again suffer torture. I speak today on behalf of the football community and of footballers across Australia and the world on the wave of the momentum created by the incredible Craig Foster. I also speak to the power of football to build the life of refugees. Hakim came to Australia to live his fullest life. He found a football club. He found a family at Pascovale. He now has a wife. Football has the opportunity and the responsibility to allow Hakim the chance to build his own family and a legacy for himself in Australia. We ask FIFA, we ask the Asian Football Confederation to exercise every step, every power, every piece of leverage they have to drive for the immediate return of Hakim to Australia in line with his internationally recognised human rights. If this means suspending Bahrain from all future international football competition, then this must happen. You cannot have the privileges of the international community if you are not prepared to live by its rules or behave by its standards. And seeking the refoulement of refugees is a clear repudiation of Bahrain's obligations as a member of the international community. The Australian Council of Trade Unions have been working with Hakeem's union and his family. ACTU President Michelle O'Neill spoke at the rally. Hakeem did nothing more than what we know and do every day, every week which is we are able in Australia to criticise our government. Many of us do it every day. There's probably not an Australian who won't do it at some time in your life. To be able to have a view about the politics of the day, about the actions of your government, of your government is something we take for granted. But this is simply the issue that led to Bahrain arresting Hakim, locking him up, torturing him simply because he and thousands of others started and were part of a pro-democracy movement, part of standing up for the rights of ordinary people to have a say. But we need to look at this even more closely because there is very real questions to be answered for the Australian government and authorities because it was the Australian authorities that tipped off Thailand to the fact that there was an illegally issued red notice, Interpol red notice, out for Hakim. Now, you cannot have a red notice against you if the country that is seeking to arrest you or bring you back is actually a country that you are escaping because of your human rights or as a result of being tortured. We have a responsibility. We have a responsibility because we gave this man safety. So we must continue to have that responsibility to bring him home safely again now. We cannot have on our watch that he has returned to a country that it is clear that he is likely to be tortured, if not worse. So we are saying, number one, this is urgent. We call on the Thai government to release Hakim now. Let him come home to his family, to his friends, to his new country. We call on the Australian government to do more, 
to step up every possible action they can take to convince Thailand to release Hakim. We support the calls of the Professional Footballers Australia and John in terms of the role of FIFA, the role of the Asian Football Confederation. They must also do more to ensure that football cannot be used in this way. Human rights matter. Those standards are something we should all fight for. We want them to take action and if that includes sanctions, sporting sanctions against Bahrain, then that should happen. And we in the Australian trade union movement will be stepping up our campaign. We will be doing more to take action to make sure that Hakim is freed. We call on every Australian to be part of this. There is no time to waste. This is the week that we must bring Hakim home. There were speeches from representatives of the ALP, Victorian Socialists, Amnesty and the Refugee Action Collective before Fatima Yazbek from the Gulf Institute of Democracy and Human Rights, who emceed the rally, closed her proceedings with more information about just what would happen if Hakim was extradited from Thailand. In Bahrain a few days ago, political detainees were sentenced to death because of their activism. Nabil Rajab, who is a prominent Bahraini human rights activist, was sentenced for five years in, in prison for only tweeting about the war in Yemen. Sheikh Ali Salman, who is known for his peaceful calls for, uh, for, criticizing, for, uh, for calling for democracy peacefully, was sentenced to life in prison because of, her, of his activism. The Bahraini government is trying to fabricate charges against these activists just to promote, her, to promote itself as a democratic government in front of the international community. Hakim is one of, the, of those victims. Hakim criticized the Bahraini royal family publicly in 2016. He exposed the blatant human rights violations committed against athletes and the involvement of the Sheikh Salman al-Khalifa in, in targeting those athletes. So that's why Hakim is now behind bars since 66 days for doing nothing, for expressing his point of view, as I'm doing right now. So we, we would like to thank the Australian government for, for the efforts that they are doing, especially the uh, Foreign Minister Maggie Spain and Scott Morrison. But we also know that they can do much more. They can put more pressure on the Thai government to release Hakim. The Thais should know that this is a critical case for us, for all of us. We want Hakim back between us. We want him to resume his life. We want him to build his future as he was doing before going to Thailand. To the Thai authorities, we want to say that we, you can resolve this matter by one word. This extradition order, which was submitted by Bahrain a few days ago, is out of order. The arrest warrant against him is on pol political basis. That's why Australia granted him the refugee status. To the government of Bahrain will say, you are not allowed to commit more human rights violations while all of us are just watching. We will speak out. We will defend all those prisoners of conscience in the prisons of all the world. We will defend all the human rights activists who are punished because of their activism. And we will call for the freedom of all the, human, of all the prisoners of conscience. Thank you all today for coming. Thank you for supporting Hakim. Footballers from all around the world have been throwing their support behind Akeem, with teams taking photos on field and international stars making public calls for his release. If you'd like to get more involved in the campaign, head to Facebook and search for Professional Footballers Australia. You're listening to Stick Together, union news and workers' stories right around the country on the Community Radio Network.
Last year, during the Victorian state election, Premier Daniel Andrews promised that if re-elected, he would commence a royal commission into mental health services and care in that state. Demand on the state's mental health services has drastically increased, but has not been accompanied by the same increase in funding and support. A report released in 2018 showed that Victoria has the lowest per capita spending on mental health in the country. We spoke with Paul Healy, the Assistant Secretary of the Health and Community Services Union, which is one of the unions in the mental health sector, about the Commission and the state of mental health services in Victoria. Thanks for joining us in the studio. Thanks, Matt. A 2018 report showed that Victoria has the lowest per capita funding for mental health. What type of problems has this led to in the sector? Well, basically, there's been an increase in demand and not been able to uh, keep up with that demand. So therefore, people are getting less treatment, less time and less care, and that's actually causing a major crisis in, the, in mental health across Victoria. Mental health care is a larger part of a bigger picture. Can you tell us how that fits into general, general health care? Over a lifetime, one in three people will have a mental illness, and so that's everybody across our whole community, and they intersect with, with all parts of our community. So therefore, they may interact with the police, uh, ambulance, uh, there's drug and alcohol issues, homelessness, crime, and then there's just uh, the loss of productivity for workers and families and disruption for school kids and all sorts of things. So it has a major effect across everyone because we've all got our mental health issues. The Daniel Andrews government promised if it was re-elected they would start or establish a Royal Commission into mental health care. Does your union support that Royal Commission and what do other unions in the sector think of it? Yes, I think all the unions are very excited. I've spoken to the police, ambulance and the ASU so far and uh, they see that, that the whole system needs looked at and there's been a bit of a piecemeal approach and we really we really advocate for a whole holistic approach to mental health so that it, it gets the people to get the service that they need at the right time. Not everyone supports the Royal Commission, though. The former National Mental Health Commissioner, Professor Ian Hickey, has said that there's no need for the Commission and the key problem in Victoria is a transferal of funding from the clinical and community health sector towards the NDIS. What role is the NDIS playing in the mental health sector and is Professor Hickey right in so far that he asserts the NDIS is part of the problem? Is a major part in the, uh, the non the non gubby sector. The issue there is that it shouldn't mental health should never been in the NDIS. It's um, because of the uh, periodical and sporadicness of mental illness, and uh, so for some people it's been a real bonus. But for a lot of those services, they lost sixty percent of the services in the NGO sector. When that part of the service in mental health is not working in Victoria, that goes back onto the public system, which is already overwhelmed and underfunded. So it's put a whole heap of pressure that wasn't there before, and so the system's crumbled. Victoria had a fantastic MHCSS system, mental health community support services and that was um, state of the art in Australia was leading the way and now that's been broken because of the NDIS rollout and it's really disappointing we've lost a heap of good workers with great experience and great passion for the work. So we know that funding is a real issue in the sector what are some of the issues that face workers um, who are doing their best in this in this area? Well if you look at the inpatient units it's demand so once upon a time clients would have up to 21 days in, in inpatient units so medication takes you know up to six weeks to be effective and people are now getting in and out of the system within um, nine, to ten, nine to ten days which is not enough time for people to recover um, and also there's not the community supports that once were so once upon a time you'd have a community case manager that would follow you constantly over a long period of time now it's only they only look after the most unwell not those that are unwell and so therefore that puts more pressure on the system and the system's buckled underneath one of the major issues we face is a staffing shortage in Victoria. There's over 450 vacancies currently in Victoria for staffing, and uh, we're very concerned that the government doesn't have a plan to replace those staff. 
They've put on some great new um, staffing initiatives, but what that does is take more staff out of the system that's already there and, and, and weakens the pool. So we're advocating very strongly that the government uh, funds 720 new graduate positions to bring young people into, and other people into the uh, system to build up the staff numbers, to build up the stock, and that way we'd be able to really uh, have a wonderful system um, and give people great careers. And anyone who's been following Haxu's work in this area would see that you've been proposing a number of different things to the government to fix care in this sector. What do you hope will come out of the Royal Commission? Um, and particularly, what do you hope will come out of the Royal Commission for the workers in the sector? Well, I just think that the, the workers need um, a lot of help to actually continue to do their job. They're very passionate, but they're just overwhelmed with demand. We need to have a, a plan that covers all parts of the system and that we have um, enough enough uh, beds. So one of the things we're particularly about is not enough bed stock in Victoria. And we believe there's um, a group of clients that are particularly difficult to manage. They should be managed in a separate unit, have the adult acute units which are already running across the state. And then underneath that, we, we call it a health and wellbeing centres where people have a longer period of time to recover. And uh, and in that services, they have a wrap around all the drug and alcohol, homelessness and general health. So they can actually get really well physically, mentally and have their system set up for them to go out in the community. And then we want to see a strong community sector where people are followed up regularly and have the supports they need to keep them out of hospital and keep them at home. Is what you're proposing a more integrated approach between social and community service workers and clinical mental health professionals? Yeah, I think that that's the blocking down the silos it would help it to a great deal. And I think that uh, when everyone works well together, uh, I worked in CAMS previously. And Sorry, what's CAMS for those? Child and Adolescent Mental Health Services, and I worked at the Royal Children's Hospital for over 18 years. And we had a much more holistic approach to working. So we'd, we'd get the school in, we'd get the scouts in, whatever the person's thing was, we'd get them in to talk to us and um, find out what their system, the life system was, and then we'd work with that system to support the person. I think that's the way we should be going for adults, towards more the way we worked in CAMS, because it's a much better way of working with people. And we saw really good results. Particularly for the workers, what is there anything particularly facing the workers in this sector um, that the Royal Commission could assist with? Showing the, the difficulties and the danger of the work. It's, it's, a very, it's very unfortunate people come in so acutely unwell and uh, in such distressed states in the, in the staff. So I also think if there was more bed stock that staff could then rotate out of the highly acute areas into a much more slower and use your other skills. There's so many skills that these staff have that they don't actually get to use because they're too busy to sit down. I think one of the other things I'm hoping for is that the medical records and the paperwork they all do is very fragmented. It's not modern. It's not, there's not a one system use. And staff spend endless times and sometimes three times they repeat the same paperwork. So we, we want a system right across the state that every service has that the government funds. And they're funded all individually. And one of their big issues with mental health is there's 17 mental health services and forensic care. They're all separate. They all completely make up their own rules, make up their own paperwork. We did an audit at one hospital and they had 650 pieces of paperwork to do over a person's admission. So it doesn't make any sense. They need to fix that up and that would make great productivity and save a lot of work. Mm. I know the workers love it when we have industrial action put bans on paperwork. Um, they don't have to do it. The world doesn't stop. So you wonder what this paperwork's all about and, uh, and the workers have much more time. So electronic system at least would help that. Turning back to the NDIS, uh, there have been a number of criticisms from workers and from the sector itself about how the NDIS is interacting both in the mental health sector but also in the disability sector as well. Can you give us a little bit of an idea about how the NDIS is interacting with mental health and what that means for people who, who need help? Part of the NDIS is actually doing all the paperwork and that's 80 pages long. And most of the mental health people who some aren't, don't have access to computers, don't have access to those sort of um, advocacy programs and all that, just can't do it. 
And because they don't have a permanent disability, an ongoing disability, that hasn't helped. So because it's a sporadic illness, they don't, they don't actually, it doesn't help them. So what they do need is they need services when they need them. So when you need a service, you should be able to go to that door and, and get it. And what's happened is those services are shut currently because of the funding going to the NDIS, and that's really caused major problems. So people need services when they walk to the door, they want to be answered. What Professor Hickey's saying about transferring funding to the NDIS away from this, is that a problem about dealing with acute illness as, a, as compared to chronic illness? I think it's a little bit of both, but it's mainly to do with the chronic long-term illnesses and the supports people need required to stay in the community. At a federal level, the Labor Party and the Greens are calling for another Royal Commission, this time into the disability uh, care sector. Your union also covers workers in the disability area. Is that another Royal Commission that you would support establishing? Certainly there is uh, issues across the state. I think Victoria actually has a very good system for disability. Uh, I think the government's done really well in that area and we've, we've worked well with them most of the time. And, uh, and I think we've got, with the registration and accreditation system they're bringing in and those supports and reviews there is, it's a very difficult area to work in. You work in a very isolated way and with the rollout of the NDIS, it's going to be more isolated because people might be only on short shifts and all these sorts of things. It's really going to fragment a fragmented system. So we're really concerned that this is going to be a problem. So if they've got proper accreditation and registration, there is hope that you know there'll be a strong system and accountability and accountability to the services. So because anyone can be a, a provider these days under the NDIS, it's a real that's that's where the Royal Commission needs to look at. So this fragmentation that you speak about in the disability care sector that is about big disability service providers being block funded by the government now being, as you say, anyone can be a provider. Yep. Is that what you're seeing in the mental health sector as well with the uh, introduction of the NDIS? Yeah, and that, that block funding is the big issue that's gone. So that's um, and that's left you know uh, about sixty percent of the services gone. So you know it's, it's got nowhere to refer. So I was talking to a case manager from uh, one of the metropolitan services, and they have nowhere to refer people for follow-up services, and that's the issue. So they have to hang on to them, and so their numbers are building, which builds pressure. Just finally, Paul, your unions a union in Victoria that's growing quite quickly uh, and you are really focused in on the mental health and disability care sector. What does it say that your union's growing so quickly in an environment where other unions are struggling for similar growth? Well, I think it's the focus on mental health and disability has come through and I think that's a growing extra. The service industry is one, one in every five jobs and so we're really excited in one sense that, that they're actually putting focus and growth in that area and it's needed. It's been needed for a long time. But I think uh, it shows to me that people will join unions for the right reason and uh, and if you ask them and getting out there and, and as that growth comes, we've got new energy and new excitement about the future of unions and I think it's a really positive um, environment for us at the moment. And, um, and you know, we had 12.5% growth last year, so that was a, a really good effort and um, been a pretty exciting time for us. Paul Healy, thanks very much for joining us on Stick Together. Thank you. Well, that's all we have time for this week on the show. Thanks to Paul for joining us. If you'd like to re-listen to the program or other recent episodes, you can download the podcast at 3cr.org.au forward slash stick together or search for us on iTunes. Stick Together is produced in the Melbourne studios of 3CR with a generous financial support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. It's broadcast right around the country thanks to the Community Radio Network. And you can do your bit to keep worker stories on the air by calling your local community radio station and subscribing today. If you want to get in contact with the producers of the show, you can send us an email to sticktogether3cr at gmail.com or call us on 03 9419 8377. You can also look us up on Facebook. We always love to get your feedback. Finally, remember, wherever you are, whatever you do, there is a union for you. My name's Matt Kunkel. Until next time, stick together. Stick together.